0: healthcare. That's what we're talking about today on episode number 82 of CXO Talk. I am Michael Krigsman, as always, joined by, you know, I really truth I lie in bed at night thinking of the superlatives that I can say about my glorious co-host, Vala Offshore, Mr. Offshore, how are you? Michael. Well, thank you very much. What a great introduction. Nothing for the best but the best. Speaking of the best Michael, we have truly an extraordinary guest today. We do. Please. We are joined today by John, Dr. John Halamka, who, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly John. Absolutely. Is the Chief Information Officer, who is the CIO of, it's a long list. John uh, why don't you introduce yourself brief- briefly and tell us the list of where you're CIO and what do you do.
1: Right, so, so these days I oversee the technology infrastructure at Beth Israel Deaconess and its hospitals, so there are five hospitals, 83 locations, urgent cares, ambulatory, a lot of eastern Massachusetts and an expanding footprint for healthcare, we're also an accountable care organization, three petabytes of data, 22,000 simultaneous users, three data centers, clouds, lots of mobile devices. I also oversee a variety of planning activities for the Health Information Exchange in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I've done a variety of things across the Commonwealth for the last 20 years. And in the Obama administration, to help oversee some of the standards creation for healthcare. I am an emergency physician, a professor at Harvard, and a pharma. And you're
0: also <laughs> CIO of Harvard Medical School.
1: Well, and I'm a professor at Harvard Medical School these days, recently handed off the CIO role at Harvard Medical School to a research focused CIO who would build out supercomputing infrastructure. So you can only do so many things in a 168 hour week.
2: Dr. Alamka, you were named 50 most influential technologists of the past 50 years and Beth Israel was named the number one healthcare IT. So how does a doctor and a practicing emergency physician become a CIO.
1: Okay well this is a little complicated but when I was 12 years old, see we're going back to the beginning, uh, (laughs) my parents were in law school. I was a latchkey child in Southern California at the height of the aerospace industry. See before there was Silicon Valley, before there was dot com, there was Boeing, Hughes, TRW. Those guys got integrated circuits early microprocessors. They tested them for military spec. And if they didn't pass, they sold them to surplus stores for a dime a pound. And so I was riding my bike as a 12-year-old around surplus stores picking up early chips that were $500 a piece for a quarter. And so taught myself analog and digital logic, early microprocessors. And then when Popular Electronics published that Altair 8800 article, I was there building the first Altair, I was the first undergraduate at Stanford University to have a computer because I built it. And so hence this dual technology and medicine path has followed since from 12 on to 52.
0: And you actually are a practicing emergency room physician.
1: So I do 600 consults a year these days oddly. I am an expert on poisonous mushrooms and plants, and so multiple times a day, I will get a telemedicine consultation appearing on my iPhone will be a picture of something a two year old has just eaten, and the question <laughs> live life or death what do we do? I don't
0: know how to respond to that to
1: respond <laughs> The answer is, don't buy an Audubon field guide and go hunting for mushrooms
0: <laughs> okay, so. Uh, later on, let's actually talk about mushrooms and you also have a practicing farm. right? So let's come back to that, uh, but tell us about your job as the CIO. Tell us what, what does that actually mean, what do you do?
1: So it's fascinating because most people seem to last in the tech industry in a given job for what, 18 months, 3 years. And I have been the CIO at Beth Israel Deaconess for almost 20. And you'd say, well, why? And it's because the nature of my job has radically changed pretty much every two years. And that is, in 1996, oh, I was writing code. I was creating personal health records and health information exchange. And, hey, this was over the Internet. In 1996, the Internet, are you nuts? And then I, over the last 20 years, have gone from, oh, writing code architecture to doing strategy to doing, you know, how do we do merger acquisition, cloud security is now one of the areas that I have a primary focus. So my day today is more about figuring out how you can run an agile enterprise with so many existing locations and so much merger activities while keeping the data secure and private. It's uh, very very different than writing code and doing the basics of what I had to do in 1996 making the plumbing work.
2: So you know surviving two decades of of being a CIO at one of the most prestigious healthcare organizations in the world must mean that you know you don't really make any mistakes. Error free uh, IT organization.
1: Oh yeah. 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 So, so of course, there are two ways you can get through a crisis. You can hide it, in which case, when they find out, you end up on page one, or you can invite the press into the – make them a party to watching the decision-making and the stress and make them understand at a deep level the issues, and then you end up either on page 37 or you end up in a Pulitzer Prize-winning article that might get published in a major trade journal. Uh, And so I've always chosen the latter which is, oh, my network collapsed. Why? What was the impact on the patients? How did I keep my job? You, I, I invited the press in. I brought in the Boston Globe. I brought in CIO Magazine. They watched us through the problem resolution. Uh, when I have had issues of security, we disclose immediately the issue to federal and state regulatory agencies, and then I go on the road saying to the CIO haven't been hacked, you just haven't looked, <laughs> you know, and you're just very, very honest about the mistakes you've made and somehow the industry forgives me because of my honesty.
0: That's a really interesting point. Uh, so is it, is it literally the case that the industry forgives you because, for, because of your honesty or are there other kind of related dynamics that are going on with that?
1: Well, there's a certain schadenfreude, right? Oh, my. He was the one who got tagged with the privacy issue. Whew, dodge that bullet. Um, and so people feel a camaraderie when you are out there on the front lines suffering. what They know they could have suffered and try to make it an industry issue rather than a personal issue. But I think there's a certain humility where, you know, to your point, um, mistakes are made every day mistakes are learning experiences and I don't actually say who was at fault, I ask what was wrong about our process, our strategy or structure that enabled that mistake. I never shoot the messenger and it's maybe that attitude that makes people understand we're all imperfect and if we can learn from each other, hmm, that's probably not a fireable offense.
2: Sure, so with this you know hyper-connected world and everyone's mobile and So, you know, a physician in your hospital, uh, you know, loses his or her phone,
1: whose fault is it? So, it sounds like you've read my job description. (laughs) Uh,
2: I'll I'll point to Dr. Halamka.
1: So, my job description (laughs) reads the following, top technology position, accountable for everything. CISO makes policy and technology choices. And if the CISO fails, the CIO is accountable. So yes, every lost laptop, every socially engineered lost password, every decision made by a vendor that results in a breach rolls up to me.
0: So we we have a question from Twitter and we we tend to give priority to the folks from Twitter to the the audience. because they're our constituency. And Mike Chappelle says he uses the Care Group case study in my in his course each semester. Would you provide some perspective ten years on? I guess ten years since it was written.
1: Well, absolutely. So the case study reflects on this network collapse that we had in two thousand two. And and you know, you guys being Boston based, you may know that As mergers occurred in the 90s, if you say take two money losing institutions and combine them into one, substantial profits don't result. And so we had a problem after a variety of merger and acquisition activities, margins were low, capital was tight, and the capacity to invest in infrastructure was that my capital budget in 2001 was zero. It was literally zero. Wow. wow. And, and so what you had was, imagine this, hyper growth of bandwidth consumption, the appearance of evil actors on the internet, and a capital budget of nothing. And that combination was disastrous and ended up resulting in propagation of errors on the network, which resulted in total denial of service for about a day and a half across the hospital and required some network re-architecture.
0: I remember that, by the way. I, we live in Boston. I remember people walking down the street talking about that, actually.
1: Yeah, so what did I learn? So first, Rahm Emanuel was right. Let no urgency go unused. And so if my capital budget was zero and then a disaster occurred, suddenly $5 million appeared and I was able to create the infrastructure necessary to keep patient records safe. So that was fascinating. You know, there's a there's a sense of urgency and that I could have lost my job, but the outcome was actually quite positive. It's stronger network and better government. Infrastructure is something we often forget. Um, How exciting is the wiring in the walls? Who is the advocate for the wiring in the walls? No, 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 I want the sexy new MRI machine. I want the Google Glass, the iPhone, the Apple Watch. It's only as good as the infrastructure in the walls. So, my job every year is to advocate for that hidden infrastructure, the storage, the servers, the data centers, the power, the networks that are behind the scenes. And so that's been my role. And my biggest observation is the blind spots that I've had over the years. Um, did I, in 2002, know how to engineer from scratch a layer three network that was resilient to all the evil actors on the internet? No. So the problem was I didn't even know what questions to ask, and so what I've been very careful about is to surround myself with people smarter than me, and to ensure that any uh, blind spots that I have are filled by others.
2: These are other uh, CIOs in your network. Uh, When you say surround yourself with folks that are equally smart, uh, these these are other CIOs that you. We're, we're, we're and too. the
1: answer is depends. So, we have in Massachusetts something called the CIO Forum where all the CIOs gather together on a monthly basis and share their experiences. And so, we have people who have gone as early adopters to certain technologies and said, you know, oh, don't go there or, or go there. So, I learned from my peers. Okay. But also, it's really important that I am not the guy who's the smartest engineer in the room. I and mean, why? you know you, you want to employ those people who are going to have that deep knowledge of well what storage platform should we be on you know we've gone from the metrics to VNX to you know Atmos to Isilon and you know we, we are a vendor neutral kind of organization going to whatever solution is most appropriate for the time and I delegate that to very smart engineers and made sure that we have the right engineers to make such decisions.
2: In terms of learning from missteps do you think uh, there's just un- unrealistic deadlines, are we just moving too fast? Let's take the healthcare.gov as an example, I mean I know every misstep is an opportunity for us to learn and improve, but is this a technology thing or, 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 or a scheduling unreasonable uh, uh, training and, 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 and other constraints that lead to uh, uh, you know, mistakes
1: and failures. Sure, so I tell my staff, well I tell them many things like there's no problem that can't be blamed on IT. You know, that's, of course, important to know. Uh, like Ebola, you know, pretty much we caused that. Um, but I also tell them you should never go live based on a deadline. You go live when the product is ready or the people are ready to use the product. And, and uh, yeah, it summarizes as follows. If you go live too early, no one... Will ever forget? If you go live late, no one will ever remember. Hmm. And if healthcare.gov was delayed six months, who would have cared? Nobody. Right. Yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah, but they, but of course, they succumb to the temporary political pressures. And I think that this issue, I, I have actually written a lot, and I've studied a lot about failed. IT related projects. And the interesting thing about it is most of the time it has very little to do with the actual technology itself and has everything to do with the context around it, including the decisions, the management decisions, and the political pressures that management feels that drive them to make certain short sighted decisions like go live based on a date, even if. Everybody, or at least some people, know that the system is simply not ready.
1: Right. And so what, of course, you've learned from healthcare.gov is what was the political fallout for going live at a date that was politically appropriate? Pretty bad. Almost devastating. (laughs) And so having done hundreds of go-lives in my life, I know there is no naysayer, there is no pressure, there is no political issue important enough to go live too early. So that's fine. Hey, this morning I just deferred another go live. I said not November third, December eighth. The people, the stuff around the software will be ready then. But
0: is it? But how do you uh, do, How do you? How does a CIO get himself or herself into the position where they have the confidence? to and influence. and influence together to move a deadline to make those decisions and run the 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 risk of pissing off all the various people who are going to blame them for all the things that could happen.
1: Uh, so a simple answer is remember I'm a Harvard professor in a world of Harvard faculty. <laughs> um, what's the value of for, formal authority? Oh that would be nothing. Uh, right. I have no authority of any kind. I have informal. Authority. I have the capacity to influence. And so what people say is, you know, we actually we've watched the last hundred go lives, and they've actually gone okay. So if he says we better lay it, you know, wait on this one. Well, you know, past experience is a good predictor. We probably should. Okay,
0: so, so operational excellence over a sustained periods. So our so uh, so Kim Stevenson, who is the CIO of Intel, is a very good. Friend of CXO Talk, and she has a pyramid that she uses uses uh, to look a model of IT. And at the bottom, she talks about operational excellence, which basically means if you want the organization to trust you, which is one of the things that I think that you're talking about, then you must develop the track record of delivering what you say you're going to deliver, actually following through at a ba- at the base level.
1: Right. And so here's one of the things I learned back in that 2002 care group network outage case. You are feeling so nervous, and you know that in that core router configuration, everything's going to light up, and it's all going to be fabulous. And so you tell all of the people, in one hour, it will all be back. And then seven hours later, you realize, oh my god, the problem's a whole lot worse than I thought, and you've just shot. Your credibility. So I learned time and time again, what you need to do is underpromise and over-deliver.
2: That's great advice. What are some of the primary mandates that you must, that you and your organization must respond to?
1: Okay. So the Obama administration has a 20 billion dollar medical record plan, and this is the Affordable Care Act and the uh, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act which forces us to follow thousands of pages of regulations, software, and processes in support of some of these new federal programs. And if you do it right, you get a stimulus. If you fail to do it, you get a penalty. So that has driven actually a whole lot of my industry for the last four years or so. And then we have some very exciting projects like ICD-10. Now, I do want to point out um, so this it is not a chicken injury, it's a guinea fowl injury, and you as a doctor need to code that species right, because otherwise it's fraud and abuse. ICD-10 is 170,000 codes, including two for bird-related injuries, and don't forget, eaten by orca, um, burned while jet skiing, and fell through jet engines.
0: Well, there's also one, fell through jet engine again.
1: Subsequent encounter, exactly.
0: Subsequent encounter, falling Subsequent. Through, ge- through jet engine.
1: You never know. And so we've had to implement that federal mandate. And then HIPAA omnibus rule, $1.5 million fines per incident for privacy breaches. And that could be a lost laptop.
2: Sorry, $1.5 million per for one incident? Correct. So why is why is why is healthcare data more costly or more valuable than any other data? I mean, can you explain the the the,
1: the, well, the why I... 1.5 million? Okay, so let's say I want Michael's social security number, 25 cents. Suppose 25%. I want his Visa card, one dollar. Suppose I want his Target Visa card, a dollar fifty. Because it turns out that the target breach include the store you bought things at and therefore I can fly below the radar screen of all of the vulnerability checking if I bought something at the store he was buying at. Now I want to buy his entire medical record because you know, I don't have health insurance. He does. In fact, I hear he has that great Blue Cross plan, one of those Cadillac plans. I want a heart transplant. All I have to do is pretend to be Michael and suddenly I get a heart transplant for free. What would I pay for a free heart transplant? On the black market, about 100 to $200 to buy Michael's medical record, including his insurance information. So this is a Willie Sutton issue. Do you want $0.25 Social Security numbers or $200 medical records? Go where the money is.
0: That is amazing. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. That's incredible. And so what's the role of IT? and your role as CIO in all of this.
1: All right, so here's my challenge. Um, the Affordable Care Act tells us we should now look at wellness rather than sickness. We should keep you out of the hospital and out of the emergency department. So you know, uh, I think you're wearing a Fitbit right now, so your Fitbit should send your activity data over to HealthKit, where then you should trust my app, so I can upload your activity levels and look to see if you are having a decreased activities of daily life, so I can make an intervention. It could be depression, it could be weight loss, it could be diabetes, who knows. So I have to get more data about you with your consent and give it to more people while at the same time the privacy of every bite of data everywhere it goes. Simple. Is
2: is this part of the Meaningful Use Stage 2? Process?
1: Yeah. Right, so the Meaningful Use Stage 2 necessitates the sharing of data across multiple caregivers so that we coordinate care, support population health and care management and it requires the security analytics so that I am keeping that data safe and it requires that I share the data with the patient and their families.
0: So is this portable data, I have a friend that's working on a project for a New England State regarding data portability between various care providers uh, so that a patient can move and the data will flow with them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well right. I, I saw in your one of your recent blogs you talked
2: about the past year using meaningful use at Beth Israel and I just want to quickly, so unique patients, 740,000, unique documents or 8.3 million, Problems: nine million procedures, eight million results, thirty-seven million medications, six point eight million. I I, I mean, this demonstrates an incredible amount of interoperability and visibility for your organization to achieve all of this. And is this common throughout healthcare organizations, or this is unique to Massachusetts and and what you've been able to achieve?
1: Well, so Massachusetts does lead the way in interoperability. It's odd. I mean, we are a nonprofit medical state with nonprofit insurers and we all love each other and we all work together because we believe the pie is a fixed size. Payers, providers, they're all part of the same revenue stream. We we better figure all this out together. In other states, somehow hospitals compete with each other and payers and providers don't like each other. So we just have a very good culture and that culture has enabled us to build infrastructure. So since 1997, we've had health information exchanges, and over the last couple of years, the state government has taken over operation of some of this infrastructure. It's just cloud-hosted transport security layers, uh, indexes, directories, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, we have a good enabler. But at the same time, this whole federal policy and all the stimulus we've been talking about has now motivated people to start sending data across organizational boundaries. So it's a combination of technology and policy and enablers. New England's just been blessed with all three aligning.
2: You, you noted in your blog, and this was reference to your father-in-law as an example. My father-in-law has demonstrated the meaningful use policy outcome in understanding of his care and respect for his privacy preferences. Is this ultimately? leveraging technology to improve outcome from a, uh, from a patient's point of view?
1: Well, so let me give you my father-in-law's example. Six weeks ago he had a stroke. And by the way, he has written consent that I can talk about this publicly, so there are no issues here of privacy or HIPAA. Sure. And his challenge was, like many of us, his records were at a primary care doctor's office, a community hospital, an academic health center. One ran EPIC. One ran Meditech, one ran HomeBuilt, and the challenge was delivering care to him that was respectful and appropriate, required merging all the data from three disparate sources in real time to make clinical care decisions. Now, I'll give you a, a ridiculous example. I mean, this is CXO, and you know, being a CXO is awful. You know, I needed to check into McLean Hospital for a month vacation, Uh, You know, James Taylor checked into this fine psychiatric facility many years ago, wrote Fire and Rain. It's a bucolic spot. Um, I also needed this time at the Betty Ford Clinic, you know, a little too much cider there. And, oh, did I mention my sexually transmitted disease, HIV status, and the domestic abuse? Well, those things I have just mentioned are completely fictitious, of course, but they illustrate the nature of the privacy of the medical record. My preference might be, share my Beth Israel Deaconess data, which is my flu shot, my allergy to penicillin, and my glaucoma, but don't share my McLean mental health, my Betty Ford substance abuse, or my Fenway community HIV records. That's my choice. And so what we try to do in the state is say, outcomes depend upon care coordination, but... Maybe you don't want your dermatologist to know about your mental health condition and that's okay. You know, we've built the infrastructure to support that.
0: But how do you, how do you, how do you manage that? Does the, how does that get handled? Because how do you know what to the particular patient is something that is positive or negative. It depends on the context of that patient doesn't it?
1: So here's what we do. At every registration of you in our facilities, we present you a one-page, sixth-grade level, easy-to-read, what are the benefits of your data being shared across the community with caregivers for your benefit. We give you a multiple-choice exam. You decide, do you want to share or not? You know, it's totally up to you. You actually have to affirmatively state what your choices are and sign it. And then we put that in electronic form in a message that goes up to the state. And the state uses it in a fascinating way. If you say yes, then we actually put in a record at the level of who you are and the fact that you have a relationship with an institution and that you've opted in to disclose that relationship. If you say no, we use it to delete any history of your relationship with that organization so that if the, the database were hacked, it's not like it's going to say, John Holamka, McLean Psychiatric, no. There will be no evidence of any kind that I was ever there. You are The granularity is at the level of the institution. It's at this point sort of a limit of technology. We can't say, oh, I want you know, three meds, share those. Two meds, don't. Um, problems, share that one but not that one. You opt in at an institution or location level.
0: Yeah, see I'm, a, uh, I'm one of your consumers because I live here in Boston and my doctors and so forth are all associated with Harvard Medical School and I remember those questionnaires and I remember thinking to myself what kind of tricky agenda do they have in their minds asking me these questions.
1: Right and so our state laws in Massachusetts, Chapter three hundred five and two twenty four stipulate we must ask patients' permission before sharing a bite of data. Now, other states have very different laws. We'll share data about you until you tell us to stop. Uh, and, and so, it, the, the nature of the agenda you see is purely to comply with our state regulations. Got it. Well, let, let's
0: let's talk more about uh, data, because and we've been talking about the data, but but. Data, as with many other industries, is transforming healthcare. Maybe can you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: So let me give you another personal example, and again, consent, don't worry, no issues of HIPAA. My wife was diagnosed with stage 3A breast cancer in December of 2011. Uh, the genomics of her tumor were HER2 negative, estrogen positive, progesterone positive, and at the time, she was a 50-year-old Asian female. Now, wouldn't it be interesting to say of the last 10,000 Asian females with a tumor like this, how were they treated? What was the outcome? Did they get sicker? Did they get well? What were the side effects? What, you know, and then say, hmm, I will ensure that she gets the medicine that seemed to provide the best outcome for 10,000 people like her. That is what we call a learning healthcare system. As opposed to today's healthcare system, it takes, on average, 20 years for an innovation from one hospital to diffuse throughout the country. We were able, with my wife, to take all the data at all the Harvard hospitals and do the query and find the medications would be most effective for her, and she's totally cured and everything is fine. So that's sort of a Big data, though I'm not sure what big data is, we have three petabytes, it's not that big. Uh, example this
0: this much data is it, big data, there you go.
1: <laughs> yeah, We were able to treat her optimally using that kind of analytic across multiple institutional data sources.
2: Do you have data scientists that work in IT or, or, or who do you partner with to, to do this type of analysis?
1: And so I actually have a whole department that focuses on that. And this is tricky stuff because let me give you another personal example. When I was two years old, my mom gave me pink medicine for an earache and saw that I had two red dots on my stomach. And she said, oh, you're allergic to penicillin. So for 50 years, I have had in medical records allergy to penicillin observed by mom. Now, what's the value of that data? Should I, in the case of a life-threatening meningitis, not get penicillin because my mom, 50 years ago, thought that it might cause harm? So our data scientists have to be able to look at structured data and understand the provenance, the validity, the certainty, the quality and integrity of that data. And the challenge, of course, is fifty percent of the data in an electronic health record is not structured. So what do you do with something like the patient whose mother had breast cancer is doing fine, right? If you did a Google search on that, you'd find patient and breast cancer. Or here's another example. If any of you have ever read a radiology report, I love radiologists. They're some of my best friends. But their favorite <laughs> breakfast food is the waffle and their favorite plant is the hedge, Uh, right? So they'll write a report like this. Um, Michael has a totally normal chest X-ray, but there's slight haziness on the left. It could be a fingerprint smear or he's dying of cancer, Uh, right? And how does a NLP, a natural language processing system, deal with negation, ambiguity, you know, either or? So, so, So that's where, again, a data scientist has to come in and say, you know, this natural language processing stuff's kind of okay for something, but you know, we're not going to guarantee you that what it interprets is accurate. Remember, Watson thought Toronto was a US city.
2: <laughs> we have a question from uh, Twitter from Frank Scamo, a technology analyst and one Frank- of one of the top one of the, without say, without say, yes, one of the top technology analysts and Mr. Scavo asked, is there an open source project around opt-in healthcare data sharing?
1: Hmm. So w- what we've done in the uh, Massachusetts uh, Commonwealth is brought together all of our payers and providers and had a common set of policies, educational materials developed by the state, set of processes that are all common. So I mean. Open source sort of generally implies, oh, it's a new license or some such thing. But I would say this is sort of, in our community, it's shareable IP used by all. Uh, I haven't specifically seen an open source project, though here is one that I would hypothesize we need. You guys have used XML. You've probably found that you can represent most anything with XML. How about... The consent assertion markup language, camel, kind of goes with HIPAA, you know, these are like animals, right? And what we could do is create a transportable open source consent uh, preference enumeration that you can carry around on your iPhone. It's a good idea. hasn't been done yet to my knowledge.
0: Hopefully, we have
2: startup
1: folks and VC. Yeah, we, need, we need
0: startup folks. <laughs> I actually uh, sent a tweet to a tweet to Mark Andreessen a few minutes ago saying he needs to uh, he needs to connect with you. Okay. So, what about um, God? I'm trying to think of what's the most interesting. There's so much that I, that I want to ask you. Can, can I can you, before the show? You mentioned you have you get 1,600
2: emails a day. I believe 1,500, right. 1,600 emails a day. Well Michael I'm interested to know where, where, do, you, where do you spend your time, is, is, it, is it technology issues, is it is it business issues, is it our healthcare issues. Uh, it's just, that's just a tremendous volume of email on a, on a daily basis.
1: Right so we are at this point in healthcare where remember healthcare has lagged other industries and in it's adoption of technology and it's maturity of automation. And the acceleration of our work because of the 20000000000 billion that's gone into the industry from the Obama administration is such that we're having to deal with the heady issues that the airline industry and the banking industry dealt with 10 years ago. So that 1,600 emails represents the, oh, my God, what should be our policy on this? What should be our technology on that? Uh, it's just unbelievable, exciting time and acceleration in my space.
0: You know, it was really interesting when you were talking earlier about your wife's cancer. Happily, that is is now in the past. And the ability to search among across uh, different hospital databases. The other day, I had a conversation with Richard Spiers, who is the former CIO of the Department of Homeland Security, and he was saying that the challenge, precisely the challenge of Federal CIO is this siloing of information very much as you were describing that you overcame. So maybe can you talk a little bit more about this notion of siloed information and collaboration going across departments and the things that you're doing to help overcome these silos.
1: Well sure, so in the past in a fee for service world. Sharing data from hospital to hospital would be like sharing competitive secrets. Oh my, you're going to steal my patient. I want my patient because more procedures, more care is more profitable. But in this world of the Affordable Care Act and in the ACO world, we're actually paid for keeping patients healthy. And if we don't share data, if we have silos, we'll all go out of business. So The alignment of incentives to share data has finally caused us to break down the walled gardens. Now, it is hard because I call something high blood pressure, Vala calls it hypertension, you call it elevated blood pressure, we're all talking about the same thing. Your blood pressure is 150 over 90, and so we've had to, as a country, try to build vocabulary standards, semantic interoperability so that the concepts recorded in different IT systems are actually understandable as you transport them from place to place. Now here's a problem. If you look at the NACHA format that's used in automated teller machines, now yeah, what does it have? 20 variables. I think I know what a dollar is. I think I know what a date and time is. I think I probably know what a bank routing number is. What's a fever? So, hey, Bala, you feeling hot? Michael, you feeling chills? You know, I don't know. What's a fever? And and so the problem is so much of medicine is all this ambiguity, you know, all this ambiguity. And, and, you know, every doctor will be trained as an apprentice and record information differently. So this is our challenge is creating common language, creating a capacity to send it across silos and uh, firewalls and competitive look and then keep it safe because the other problem is is that if I send your data to somebody they have to trust and what if they compromise it I'll be held accountable. It's tough. Which
2: technologies do you think will be uh, you know the most important in the coming years we hear Internet of Things and wearables and maybe predictive uh, uh, analytics and algorithms using big data do you have a sense of, you know, if you fast forward Cxo Talk five years from now, uh, what what will we spend the 45 minutes talking about?
1: Okay, so you of all people have heard the acronym SMAC tossed around as social, mobile, analytics, and cloud. Well, in healthcare, it's often social, cloud, analytics, and mobile. Scam. Um, you know that is there are companies whose products are compiled in PowerPoint, which is a very powerful development language. <laughs> Um, But let's drill down on those technologies and where they could be real and important. Although it wasn't precisely true, you saw in the news recently that doctors and nurses in Texas did not communicate around a patient's travel to West Africa. Now why? Well the nursing note and the doctor's note, well they're in separate places, and in fact every doctor writes their own note. What we in fact need is Wikipedia for healthcare, Mm. so why not? have doctors, nurses, social workers, pharmacists, all creating a group-authored note that represents the status of the patient based on everyone's opinions and interviews. And that note represents the singular, not multiple, source of info on that patient for that day. And then, underneath the note, we have a Facebook wall. Not really a Facebook wall, but my gist is, it's the events that happen to you. Oh, here was a blood pressure measurement. Here was something that your parents decided was important. Here is something that came in from a a lab result, or whatever. So in one place, you're seeing group-authored facts, and then incidents or events below it. That's a social documentation method that has never been used in healthcare. So Let's try something like that. Now what about mobile? So mobile, yes, as you point out, you know, here is a device which, if I wear, identifies my pulse ox, my pulse, my activity level, my sleep, sends me a Bluetooth low energy to over here where then I could choose to make it available to my caregiver. That idea has got power. If you have congestive heart failure and you gain weight seven pounds in a weekend, you'll probably end up in an emergency department on Monday. We can double the dose of your meds and make an intervention because we were able to find out you had a change, a variance, before you decompensated. So mobile, increasingly getting data from the home. Analytics, we need to look for gaps in care. We need to understand what we need to do to keep you well by using protocols and guidelines and looking at data from multiple sources and figuring out where to fill in the gaps. And cloud. The the hospital systems have often been written in 1990s era technologies, but they are migrating to cloud-hosted, thin-client, mobile-friendly infrastructures so that we're going to be more agile. You're going to be able to spin up an electronic health record at lower cost and much more quickly than we can today, and the hundreds of millions of dollars per site and the years of work is going to be radically reduced.
0: Okay uh, we have just a few minutes left and we have several questions so, so let's do a lightning round with you where we're going to ask you a few questions from Twitter and if you can respond pretty quickly, how's that? You got it. Okay number one, uh, from, Sherry Run, from Sherry Reynolds, how are new payment models influencing
1: healthcare IT? Quickly, we used to spend a dollar on IT and Blue Cross would benefit handsomely. Now with the idea of Obamacare and global capitated risk, every dollar I spend in IT that reduces cost and improves quality results in my having more cash. My, I benefit, he who invests is he who benefits. That's a big difference.
0: Okay, by the way I hope that there are some reporters out there who are listening. We have Another question from Accenture Interactive. How does at John Halamka find time to practice medicine? How do you find the time to be a doctor in addition to doing all of this? But before you answer please but talk before you answer. before you answer please talk about Union Farm because Union Farm
2: they need to know about that and it'll it will make your answer
0: more uh, more uh, Yeah. Interesting. so tell us about Unity Farm and then tell Unity, us how you yeah, find sorry find the time to practice medicine?
1: Well, so, right, three answers to that is being a CIO in 2014 is not a job, it's a lifestyle, right? It's not as if there is any separation from life and work. It's all just continuous. It goes around the clock. It's 365 days a year, no matter where I am in the world. My office is where my laptop is. It's sort of the nature of the game. Now, I come home after whatever workday, could be 12 or 14 hours, and I have a farm with 100 animals, 55 different subtypes of apples, uh, 11 kinds of shiitake mushrooms, 6 kinds of oyster mushrooms, and guinea fowl, ducks, chickens, etc. And I shovel manure. And keep in mind, shoveling manure and being a CIO are very different activities. Um,
0: very different, okay.
1: Very <laughs> different, indeed. So, sure, as an emergency physician, I have learned that I sleep when it's convenient, you know, three, four hours a night, and I have done that since about the age of eighteen. So maybe the secret answer is I'm fifty-two chronologically, but sixty-five by waking hours.
2: <laughs> okay, so before you ask one more question for those of you interested in, in um in cider, apple cider, harder cider, um uh, very recent blog by Dr. Halamka. I just want to share the distribution here because I, th- I think it's very important in terms of the uh, Dr. Halamka picked 147 pounds of apples and mer- made hard cider with the following distribution very important 8% crab apples, 56% Macintosh, 21% Honeycrisp and 15% Macoon. Can you please talk to us Dr. Halamka about the, uh, how you came up with the distribution.
1: Okay. So, so if you were to take, you know, your typical apple and uh, so here's a Mac, you know, uh, you have a new Mac, I have a new Mac. Uh, each apple has a characteristic of being sweet, tart, astringent, and aromatic. And the problem, of course, is if you drank cider made from crab apples, your tongue would curl. But if you drank cider just made from sweet apples, it'd be cloying. So the, the trick is to... After batch after batch after batch, get the experience the right combination of those four characteristics, have something pleasing. I tend to like a little bit tartar cider, so I choose apples and a method of fermentation that makes a cider that pairs with food. And I'm a vegan, so maybe, you know, that's the other secret. I don't spend all my time digesting meat and dairy. You know, it's, uh, it's work and vegetables for me. Wow. I,
0: and your farm, your farm has a website, so I'm, and so you actually sell your your produce and so forth to the public, right?
1: We do, and we have 100,000 bees, so we've got honey, mushrooms, and you'll find over the next couple of years, as the farm continues to expand, uh, our commercial quantities will get greater. And at the moment, we're mostly regional, in just surrounding farm stands around uh, eastern Massachusetts.
0: Okay, well, this has been a very, very fast Cxo talk, right? F- on 50 minutes, and it feels like we've been talking for. I know we should. Time. We could go on for another few
2: hours. Once to stop. Thank you so much for spending a Friday afternoon with us. Um, uh, incredible, incredible honor for me and Michael. You
0: have been watching show number 82. With Dr. John Halamka, who this has been an awesome show. So if you haven't seen the whole thing, I really urge you to go back and watch the replay. I'm Michael Krigsman with my what? Friendly. He's always say friendly. He's, he's friendly. He's friendly. people say he's the nice co-host. I'm the evil co-host. Not I think ma- it's not, the re- not many people say. that. You don't say that. No, I don't say yeah. that. No. And that's it. We're done. Thank but you. Great show. It's a. Great talking with you, John Holamka thank you so much for joining us today and everybody thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you again next time. Thanks.
1: Thanks, bye bye.